Hey gang, welcome to episode 134 of the No Persinium podcast, the voice of everything immersive. I'm Noah Nelson, coming to you from No Pro headquarters in Los Angeles. Today on the show, Catherine Yu is filling in as our interviewer uh, to talk with Allison S.M. Kobayashi of Say Something Bunny, a show which uh, is really beloved by our New York staff. I'm a little jealous because I haven't got a chance to see it. Um, it's been getting a lot of... Uh, a lot of buzz in New York. It keeps extending, uh, and it's just a, a different kind of theatrical experience. You're going to hear about that in a bit, but first, we've got a few things to take care of. And now's usually the part where I'm going to tune out because we're going to talk about Patreon. You know what? I'm going to I'm going to mix it up this week. I'm going to keep you on your toes. Uh, we just did uh, an immersive 101 the other night at uh, Thymeli Arts in Los Angeles. Um, in conjunction with our friends at Theater Asylum and uh, our friends there and with the help of our, our partners in Leia. And I was expecting you to be like 30 people or so checking it out since we were pitching out to the Hollywood Fringe crew and, you know, a little bit beyond. We had like 60 folks. We had a lot of people. Um, like double what I thought we were going to have, which leads me to believe, oh, we need to do this more often. Um, so, you know, one way or another, uh, we're going to do this more often. Uh, but th- we've already got another event coming up. Um, th- I think you're going to see we're going to have a lot of events in 2018 uh, just because uh, the demand seems to be there. But this one's uh, pretty special. This is the Leia Town Hall. It is our first public meeting as uh, as a, a nascent, I guess you would say, organization. I mean, legally, we don't exist yet. Um, you know, a bank account yet. Uh, but we that doesn't stop us from working. Um, come on down. Come on down. On Monday, the 29th, that's the Monday after this show goes out. Doors at 7. Um, programming starts at 8 o'clock at Thymeli Arts at Santa Monica and Western in Los Angeles. Uh, we're doing a little State of the Union action. Uh, come meet other creators. Uh, other fans, this is this is for the public. Uh, everyone can kind of come, uh, get the lowdown on what's been going on for the past year in immersive, in general, uh, in LA in specific, and uh, we're gonna you know lay out exactly what Leia's up to, and uh, for those who have got the wherewithal, how you can get involved. So there you go. That's the big pitch right now. Hey, now we're gonna talk about the Patreon. Um, because we need to give our props to the folks who make this show happen. Our latest Patreon backer is Laura Cheek. Thank you so much for joining the cause. Our sustaining backers, as always, are Ross Sigworth, Bradley Smith, Yan Budman, Arthur Tubman, Ari Hurstan, and Lonnie Hanson. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, the Patreon, uh, we've got one new backer this week. <clears throat> sure would like to see more. Um, we're going to go into campaign mode in February. Uh, as we kind of charge forward with the year, because uh, the goal is to get you no know, proscenium, uh, get all this work sustainable. Um, so more on that in the month ahead. But in the meantime, if you've been enjoying this, if you like everything immersive, if you like the website, hey, wouldn't it be awesome if uh, we had the funds to do this uh, full time? I'm going to tell you right now, it would be very awesome if we had the funds to do this full time. And right now, 735 bucks a month is not enough to do it full time. Nope. Not in any city in America. Um, 
Maybe not in any city in the world, let's be honest. So swing on by to patreon.com slash no proscenium. Uh, every dollar helps. Uh, $5 is super ideal um, uh, to to keep it going. That's, you know, that's a cup of coffee a month. Uh, well, a cup of, you know, lot anyway. You know what I'm trying to say. Do you? Yeah, you do. Okay. Um, enough of that right now. Let's see, anything else that everybody should know about? Um, no, no, nothing else I can tell you at the moment. Um, it's, uh, it's already a busy year. Um, there's a bunch of shows going on here in LA. There's, there's just, there's just little things popping off here and there. I know there's going to be some announcements of a few things in the next couple of weeks. So just, you know, get ready, batten down your hatches. Um, you know, uh, realize that, uh, you're, you're going to be planning travel, um, stuff like that. So there you go. Um, let's get ready to hand this over to Catherine, uh, Allison SM Kobayashi. Uh, let's see, let's, let me pull a line from, um, from Catherine's review of say some, something bunny, Allison SM Kobayashi, documentarian, detective, self-described identity contortionist, conjurer of ghosts, an artist obsessed with found objects and creating works based on them. I think that does a fantastic job of setting up this interview. So with that in mind, let's get to it. So why do you, uh, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us, tell the listeners about the space we're in right now. Cool. Yeah. So I'm Allison S.M. Kobayashi. I'm an artist uh, specializing mostly in performance and video art. And we are in the space for Say Something Funny, which is the one woman performance that I'm currently doing here in Chelsea at 511 West 20th Street. And we're actually sitting at a 14 foot circular table that the performance happens around. And the perf- do you want me to go into the performance? Yeah. yeah, how exactly do you describe it? Because I myself have trouble even explaining it to other people. So I don't even know what language you might use. It's, it's funny because I think it's really best if people don't know that much coming in. I always love when people kind of come in without knowing anything. But if they need to know, um, it's a, a two-hour performance based on a found audio recording from the 1950s made on a wire recorder, which is a kind of extinct... Uh, vintage technology where sound was recorded onto a piece of wire and it's this family in New York that's recording themselves and it's somewhat mundane and ordinary and kind of a recording that all of us make in our lives of our families when we're together Uh, but there's something about it that really captured me and the performance tries to kind of excavate uh, this recording and understand it Uh, and each of the people in the audience is cast as a different character in the family, but they don't have to say anything. They're just there as as if they're an actor preparing for a role, for some, a future performance of this of this text, which is the audio recording itself. Yeah, can you explain a little what, you know, might have got into that decision? Like, why is every person in the audience a cast member? Mm-hmm. It's So, also, we might say... I imagine that this is probably going to be for people who've already seen the performance, but we might go into some spoilers of the show. Um, so you probably just, if you're going to see the show in the future, not. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, it is something that you figure out in the first couple of minutes mm-hmm. when you're here, so I don't think it's that much of a spoiler. Right, right. But for future stuff that we talk about, too. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, so, well, we found out that 
the one the main character of the audio recording, the person who's actually making the audio recording, ended up becoming a playwright and a scriptwriter. And so we were really thinking about his biography and his experience of this first moment of you write a script and you're going to have a cold reading with your performers and this moment of gathering around a table and sharing it together for the first time and interpreting the script and the text. Um, So it was part of the research that I came across in learning about the people who actually made this recording. And then also just an interest in when we first started developing it, we were like, okay, when I say we, Christopher Allen and I, Christopher Allen is my collaborator and we wrote this together. Um, we, I, I was like, okay, should I just make like a set from the 1950s and try and find all of the objects and just realize that I was really not interested in doing all of that and like making this perfect recreation of the 50s and thought it would be so much more interesting if we could create something that lived in the imaginations of the people who came to the performance and each person would come out with their own interpretation and how they saw the characters and you know uh their own idea of what these people looked like and and because that happens just naturally when you hear recorded sound you just start creating images I think um so we were like, why don't we create a performance that is quite minimal in terms of the set and that all of the action is something of a imagination or something, that it's, it's an act of... An, um, the performance really is an act of imagination for the audience to take part in. Yeah, yeah, it seems like it has a lot more in common with podcasts or audio dramas uh, but it's interesting that you did think about making it what sounds like a straight-up play. Do either of you have a theatrical background? Christopher more so than me. I uh, Christopher studied theater and more experimental theater in college, um, but then went on to uh, run and found this space called Union Docs, which is uh, we help run it together with an amazing staff of people. Um, but he really ended up going more into documentary but kind of more experimental documentary and nonfiction, and I kind of came from more of a visual arts background I did like drama classes in high school but kind of like when I went into college kind of stopped doing theater and started doing more I guess performance work and Mm -hmm. performed in my own work and I think that that probably influenced the format of this of Say Something Bunny because we the first time we presented it was in Toronto at an art gallery, Gallery TPW. Um, we had a really amazing curator, Kim Simon, who really gave us, like, full range. She was like, you know, kind of use the space to do what you want to do. And so I think that freedom and also doing it in kind of a non-conventional theatrical space really let us kind of create this piece how we wanted to and we didn't... And we didn't have the same, it needs to be theater, it needs to be, I don't know, it, did, it didn't really seem to have to be in a specific category of how we interact with the audience. I mean, you read for 45 minutes of it, which is pretty unusual, I think, for a performance. But there, I think that we were just like, let's make it what we want it to be, and the audience can kind of figure out what it is instead mm-hmm. of us defining it as theater, art, or performance. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense, especially since what you end up with is so hard to just give any sort of label. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of the past performance art work that you've done? I looked 
on your website. There's some really fun stuff there. (laughs) It's usually a lot of my previous work was based on found objects. So I have always been interested since I was a kid on going to thrift stores and like finding old things and kind of spending time with them. And so I don't know if you saw the project Dan Carter but it's, um, I used to collect answering machines that people would donate to thrift stores and listen to the tapes. And the first time I did this, I found this answering machine from this guy, Dan Carter, and just thought it was such an amazing record of his life, this kind of accidental portrait of a person. So I made a video where I was recreating each of the callers who left messages for him to kind of create this portrait of this man, a complete stranger, but, but didn't end up researching him at all. I just used kind of what was on the tape to understand who he was. And so a lot of my early work was much more using documents, but fictionalizing them. And Say Something Money is the first time that I really like dug into an archive or did research um, on, on this level. I'm not, you know, I'm not a researcher or don't really have a background in that kind of thing. So if I'm understanding you correctly, you would kind of use found objects as a jumping off point, but not necessarily worrying about historical accuracy or things like mm-hmm. that. And then you shifted for Say Something Bunny. So mm-hmm. what was that like, that whole research process? Well, it was such a foreign period of time to me. You know, I grew up in like the 80s and 90s and like the aughts or whatever. And so the 50s, it's really like my parents Like, it's even kind of before my parents' generation. Like, they were born in the 50s, so they were just, like, infants, really. Um, Or my dad was born in 48. But it's just such a period where all of these pop culture references, like, I didn't know what they were talking about, and it almost sounds like nonsense. Like, this, the phrase sound off for Chesterfield makes no sense as a set of words together. But if you grew up in the 50s, you're like, that is a cigarette commercial, because... And Chesterfield uh, cigarettes don't exist anymore, so I don't think that they're in production. So it's just this, like, interesting pop reference that's lost in a way. But, you know, if I was 60 years old right now and doing this project, I'm sure these things would just come to me so much ease, so much more easily. But I don't really have that nostalgia for the period because I ha- didn't live in it. So... It, it, I feel like it means something different to me. It's like it's such a different discovery, and like, you know, f- uh, figuring out like that he went to Fanny and that Eddie Fisher was in it, and so all of this. Uh, yeah, the period was just this different thing to investigate, and also just like the characters and everything. It was just like completely interesting to find out that what they ended up doing with their careers and. They really have interesting lives, which was such a fortune, like, so lucky for me to be able to have come across something that was made by people who are quite interesting. Yeah, I'm really impressed that you were able to kind of cobble together information from lots of different sources. What were some of the strangest places you found clues? Oh, gosh. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it was really everywhere. It, I think that it was just constantly trying to cobble things together like you know there's a film that I had to watch that's erotic of nature and I had to go to a library and and, you know I was really expecting them to give me a little booth that was like isolated somewhere to watch this erotic film and 
they just put it in the middle of the library. And so I was just like watching this scene and like people were like walking by and getting their books. And I'm like, it's research. Sorry. Uh, look away. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been actually really fun to be able to go to archives and just, I'm so thankful that so many of them are, um, preserving stuff that doesn't necessarily seem relevant to everyone or to like what, I don't know. It's just, it's like the fails library, which is where, um, what this video was, they just preserve really interesting objects and ephemera in their special collections. And I feel like that's just so important and really appreciate that libraries are just right like you you don't stuff. know what's actually going to be important until many years later yeah so uh, was most of your research in and around the new york area a lot of it was um and a lot of it was online and then you know some of it some of the research brought me to washington dc to the library of congress and then also i visited the ucla uh, archives because there's this audio recording that the second wires taped over of this episode of our, our Miss Brooks, which is a you know a radio show and a te- it was also a television show in the fifties and the forties, but you know this library, the UCLA library, they had the complete archive of the scripts, and but they didn't digitize anything. They had like a record of what scripts they had, but that was it. So you had to physically go to the archive, and this show was on for probably like ten years. So there's like and it was on every week. So there's like hundreds of scripts in their archive so you have to like physically go there and you can only take out like five at a time and then you have to like wait for the next box to come out so that was really interesting just to go through like be able to access these documents and like I think that the script that I was looking at was the script of the person who wrote it like it had his name on it and stuff so it was like kind of this amazing moment you know you have the little white gloves on and you're like gosh I feel like the pages are yellowed it's quite beautiful to access this this work yeah that's awesome did you ever feel like you were on some sort of wild goose chase like what did your friends and family (laughs) say about this quest I feel like I didn't I mostly talked to Christopher about it I feel like there were a few people every once in a while where I would like I would be so ecstatic about something like I would be like oh my gosh I found a picture of David and they would be like okay you know because they didn't they hadn't heard it they didn't really understand what I was doing um they hadn't seen it at that point and I think when I started showing the actual the performance when I did the performance uh, we had a special show in Toronto with my collaborators so the people who helped me work on the script and build this table and stuff that we designed the table and the script with they came to the performance for the first time and they were like oh my God, this is what you have been doing? Like they had been working on it on these like isolated projects kind of were like, okay, we're designing this table. And like, they kind of understood why we were making these decisions, what it was based on. But they, it was just such a weird project to kind of explain mm-hmm. to them. And at that point it was still developing too. So we really um, were figuring, figuring it out ourselves. So yeah, that was very fun for the first time to be like, that's why I cared about this photo of this guy. How long was the process, and when did you realize that this even could be a performance? It was 2011 was when I first heard the audio recording, and then 
you know, the first four years was just working on the transcript and doing other projects and like doing other things. We worked on a, on a project at Union Docs called Living Las Suras at the time. And so that really kind of was the main focus. And then every once in a while, I'd come back to it and transcribe it a little bit more and kind of sometimes picking up some of the pop culture references. But it wasn't until late 2015, like October or something, that I found that census and that I really had anyone's last name. And so before that, it was like, you know, it was kind of a mystery. It was only the only information that I really had about these people was what they said about each other on the audio recording. And then when I found the, the census, it, it just completely opened it up and it made it so that I actually had people's last names and some of the characters' first names because they, you know, it's just people talking to each other. So not everyone addresses each other by their first names. So that, w- that was just kind of this transformative moment that really shifted this project into, oh, this could be a project where I research the people. Do, uh, did anyone find out you were doing this and try to help you? It was pretty isolated in, in a bit. Uh, like, it was just kind of such, it was such obscure people to be researching that there weren't really experts out there on the, on the, st- on this material. And, like, I probably could have sought out people who, um, were m- more, Maybe experts on that time period yeah, or something. Yeah, I could have done that, but I, I wasn't really interested. I, it was kind of just this, like, you know, journey of just following these tangents myself, and that's why I think it ends up being... It's, it's very, like, my own journey through this research, what the performance ends up being. Was there ever a point where you said, this is nuts, I just need to stop or take a break? Yeah, well, I took lots of breaks. I mean, in terms of, like, the early, the first four years, like, I definitely took a lot of breaks, you know. Um, but then once we, once the research started happening and we were, we, we were, had a deadline also to do a performance in Toronto in January 2016. So at that point, it was, like, it's just fast approaching. Like, I'm not going to be doing uh there's no more breaks at this point because it's just like so soon. We did a lot of work in a really short period of time. And I also did a residency at Yaddo for a month. So it was really um, um, just nice to have like one month to focus on the project and like get it. It was just the only thing I thought about like morning, noon, and night. So Yeah, yeah. I can imagine how it could be all consuming, especially if you do have this big mm-hmm. looming deadline. Um, so once you premiered it at Toronto like how did you get it from there to down here in Chelsea in New York yeah so we we did it in Toronto in January 2016 and we were kind of thinking oh we'd love to bring it to New York and we're kind of thinking of different institutions to work with but uh, you know I'm I'm not an established performance artist and the performance we had documentation of the show in Toronto but we really felt like the curators that we wanted to see the work, they should see the, the work itself and experience it because watching a video of this happening is really a completely different experience. So Christopher and I were like, well, what if we just set up our own space and just like did it ourselves? Like we could just find a room that's big enough to fit this table and like set it up. It only needs two people to run. Like it needs one operator and one performer. And so just because we don't have to have this like huge crew of people. It's like a pretty sustainable performance in terms of, you know, 
taking the risk to just do it ourselves. So we found a space actually next door to here. It was our first performance space, and we did a Kickstarter, and we're really lucky to like get our goal and had a lot of support from like friends and family and some other people who, you know, were like, oh, what's this project? Let's give it a chance. And then did it, and yeah, it was a lot of work, and we pretty much just did it, the two of us, like renovating a space, bringing the table from Toronto in a van. <laughs> um, it's a very kind of DIY production, but I think that the rewards have been really, we really have felt so rewarded by just being like, yeah, we did it ourselves. We weren't waiting for a person to say, to invite us to do it at their space. We're like, why don't we just create our own space and take it from there? Overall, what's the most common reaction that you see from people who come to the show? There's a whole range. I mean, some people, like a lot of people are really touched. I think that they feel, they become their character in a lot of ways. And I think that they feel that makes them have a connectedness to the recording and to the characters and the story. I think people are often like really overwhelmed by the research um, and kind of where it ends up going. There's a lot of like kind of twists and turns in it. Um, but we've just, we've had like really awesome audiences, which it's a very unusual format for a show. So I don't think it's for everyone. Um, and we're really lucky that, and thank you also, you have sent amazing people um, and through the, your article. And then also I think like your uh, coworkers and stuff. Yeah, yeah, people but, come uh, a lot of no pro contributors. Yeah. Like you're like, oh yeah, this is, it wasn't really necessarily on my radar if I'm looking at things like what's going on with museums or performance art mm-hmm. or theater. It mm-hmm. kind of sits in this crazy netherworld of all three. <laughs> I like I really love that that it doesn't it doesn't have to be strictly in one category and hopefully people can leave being like, What was that? Um, but that it kind of, you know, opens up the genre a little bit. And in terms of the size of the audience, do you think you would even ever try to do it with more people or fewer people? It's possible. I mean, I think that we would have to really think very hard on how to make that work. It's it's limited because everyone is connected to a voice heard on the recording. So it's like very small. It's only an audience of 24 people. Um, but yeah, I... I would be open to experimenting with that, but it would have to be very thought. Like, it wouldn't... I don't know. It would require a lot of kind of rejiggering of things. It's not something that I think I have the solution to now, but I like being able to look at everyone. I like being able to... Like, as a performer, I think it's really helpful for, for me to be able to, like, connect to the audience, which I feel would be also something that's lost if you have... 200 people like it's just hard to make eye contact with 200 people or something and else and I don't know it creates this this nice space where we're able to spend this two two hours and 20 minutes together and be with each other that the audience can see each other's faces too is really part of it I think are there ever people who you kind of have to coax into it yeah I think that you know, when people pull out this script, there's this moment of terror for some people who, like, I don't love, you know, 
having to perform if I don't know that I'm going to have to participate in a project. So that's why I think at the beginning we're like, don't worry, you won't have to perform. You don't have to say anything out loud. And so hopefully people are pretty, like they ease into it. Um, But yeah, of course we have people who are like more shy and then there's some people who like talk back and are more outgoing and, you know, uh, which also has its own thing. So there's a whole range of, of personalities, which is like keeps it kind of fun for me also. Does anyone ever try to maybe start steering things in a direction and you have to steer them back? Not really. I mean, people have been pretty respectful. I mean, people have had like comments here and there, but it's usually, um, it's, you know, it's just like a passing thing. It, it doesn't really derail it ever. We've been pretty lucky. People are pretty respectful, and maybe it's because, like, you're looking at everyone else, and so there's this different sense of, like, your relationship to the audience. You're not just, like, this quiet person who can heckle, you know. It's like everyone can see you talking. Um, And especially you can see everyone. So I'm curious, uh, how many shows are you doing a week? We have, right now, it's on average four. And sometimes we do like a private performance or, or we might shift it because of the holidays or something, but it's usually Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And you are active for the entire two plus hours. That's right. <laughs> how, how, are, how are you even accomplishing that? It seems really draining. Well, I mean, I think what it's fun because it's like I get to tell this story that no one's heard before, so that it's motivating. And I try and like, you know take proper naps and stuff before and keep my energy up throughout the day and stuff but it's really just like I get excited about sharing the story so it's really it's fun and I also I mean I get to be myself like I I think I'm pretty high energy in it on some level but I also get to just talk to people about something that I'm really interested in so it's just you know yeah, um, I was curious at the end, um, how many costume changes do you end up going through? Probably not as many as... there's. It's probably under, like, maybe there's, like, five or six or something. Really? My know. perception oh, of like, it in the seemed media like too. there was a lot more because you're singing. That's true. And you're dancing, and it's it seems very physical. And because you <laughs> are taking on the persona of not just the people in the recording, but some of the ancillary people that might yeah. have touched their lives. Personally, I came out of there thinking, oh my God, she played like 40 people tonight. <laughs> well, there is, with the addition, you know, there in the live performance, it's like me and then there's a bunch of characters, but there's probably like, maybe there's like six or something. I can't remember. But, and then there's the addition of like all of the pre-recorded material where I'm also dressed up as characters. So that adds definitely a lot more... Yeah, because some of the videos I'm, like, playing three characters or something. Have you ever yeah. stopped to count how many different people you become I during the show? I need to do this. I have to do this. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I guess to build on that, um, what, keeps you, what keeps you going? I feel like I'm excited that people are interested in this. I think it's a very ordinary story in some ways, um, that, it, that it's about people who lived somewhat normal lives. I mean, it's just, it's like middle-class Americans um, and that people are interested in like spending time thinking about them and just being with a lot, a lot of these people. And most of the characters in this have 
passed away. I think that there's only one of them that's still alive. I feel like that's so touching and it really inspires me to continue doing this and sharing this story. And it's really fun. Like it's, it's fun to be able to go to work and spend time with people in a way that's like a different way. You know, I previously I edited videos and stuff and I really love that work too, but there's something that's really fun about like physically being in my body and with other people and, you know, running around and being characters. Um, it's a very, it's a, it's a process that brings me a lot of pleasure. And you guys have been extending and extending and extending. So it, it seems like it's going pretty well. Yeah, I think we might be extending it again until April. That's the current plan. So we'll probably be releasing some tickets at the end of the month. We also just made some gift vouchers. I'll show you the little... Uh, I did a new illustration that people can get if they give a gift voucher. So if people liked it, there's also this new way that you can like give it to someone. For very, very a gift. cool. Yeah. Um, so uh, thank you so much. Thanks. This has been so wonderful chatting with you. Um, it's probably pretty obvious that I love the show. Yeah. And I think that our listeners will love it too. You also came to a really fun performance because I think you sat beside David Byrne. <laughs> No, I think that was... was uh, I remember seeing the picture the next day, and I think he either went to the one before I went or after, because I probably would not have been able to pay attention during the show (laughs) had I been sitting next to David (laughs) But, hey, it's great that, you know, um, it's New York, right? (laughs) So we've got a lot of celebrities going to these kinds of events anyway. But, yeah, just to be in such an intimate space. Were Were you intimidated at all? I... He was amazing. I was really, like... I think that... He was so giving in the performance. He was a really big character who gets a lot of attention. He was June, who gets a lot of attention in the first act. And, you know, I think that when people are famous, sometimes they just want to go to things and be, like, a normal person. But it was kind of, like, an intense thing because I was like, I got to really bring a lot of, draw a lot of attention to this person. But he was so amazing and he laughed and stuff. But uh, some of our friends who were also at that performance were like, oh, yeah, we see him around New York at lots of art events. Like, he's really, like, a supporter of new art stuff. And he actually did a... He produced a film that we showed at Union Docs last year um, called Contemporary Color, I think. Oh, yeah, that was um, because of the band he was doing with all, like, the drills and the flags. Yeah, Yeah, I remember seeing that. Yeah. So, Um, very, very cool. Well, I hope that many, many, many more audiences get to enjoy the show. Me too. Thanks for talking. Thank you so much. Once again, I want to thank Allison S.M. Kobayashi for being our guest on the show. You can catch up with Say Something Bunny at saysomethingbunny.com. Fascinating how that works. Um, and also, a uh, big thanks to Catherine for uh, catching that rabbit for us. Um, it was inevitable. I was going to I was gonna make a Elmer Fudd type joke. Of course I was. I'm me. Hey, um, what's going on? How's it going? Um, if I, I'm, I'm not sick. I know you might sound like, oh, no, you still sound sick. And it's like, eh, no. 
the the electric kettle refused to work this morning. I have not had any coffee, so this is a a caffeine free edition of the uh, the show. You can tell it's low energy. Um, I got to go fix this problem of no caffeine very soon, um, and it it interferes with my ability to remember what's going on. Um, there's there's there is a lot going on. Uh, we have um, we we've got some new reviews and uh, articles on the site this week. That you should go check out if you haven't already. Uh, we've got several more in the pipeline. We're working on revamping the newsletter structure, so you're going to see some changes coming up. Um, there's going to be a new edition coming along. Um, a couple of old editions are going to get folded into each other. Um, I'm sure there's going to be some controversy about that, uh, but we just want to keep making the best. Look, if you're going to be doing a volunteer effort at the level that we're doing, and we're we're really doing it, um, you want to make sure that your efforts are not uh, in vain, and you want to make sure that you've got the most impact uh, with the the least amount of effort possible. Um, It's true. I'm gonna I'm gonna lay it out there, uh, particularly because you know uh, this is our this is our not entirely paying side hustle, so uh, just know we're, we're 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 getting in there with the wrenches and moving pipes around. Uh, but in the long run, uh, you're going to be very glad because it means uh, more consistent newsletters um, and a, a broader uh, reach of material for you. Uh, to uh, go out and see. So there, you're going to like it. Darn it. Um, what else is there in the world? Uh, Speakeasy Society's got some a lot of stuff coming up this month. Uh, wild parties happening. Stronger, Kansas. Uh, they're just like, kind of like nonstop right now. Um, there's There are a couple of shows that are, there's at least one show that's going to be announced in LA in about a week. I think you're going to, you're going to, we might even get to drop that news here on the, on the show, or it'll be obvious once we go like the guest is, um, what else is going on? Um, dude, stuff. Um, there's this stuff, man. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, that's really helpful. Um, no, I was I was really impressed by how many people came out the other night. I was actually kind of shocked. At first, it was like, went through this thing of, oh, here's a few people. Okay, yeah, I know this is going to be fine. And then and then by the time we had about 30 people, I was like, oh, whoa, this is like really a thing. I was like, how many more people? What? we? This is only half? This is, oh my God, what have we done? What have we done? And... Um, Look, about half the people in that room raised their hands when they said they were interested in doing immersive at uh, the Hollywood Fringe. So that would be 30-ish people are looking. Some of them are going to be paired off, right? You know, so, but we only had 11 projects listed as immersive last year. So even if you cut that number in half, it got us down to 15. We're probably going to see a lot of immersive projects at the Hollywood Fringe this year. So just, you know, fringes in June. Think about it. Just think about it. I'm just saying. Um, think about doing that this year with your time uh, if you're not an Angelino. And if you are an Angelino, what are you? Of course, you're, you're going to go to Fringe. Um, golly. There's, there's, um, yeah, my brain's empty. This is me on not caffeine. I'm sure there's something uh, deep I could talk about, um, you know, but I've been doing a lot of that lately and I just kind of want to turn my brain off. So um, next week, 
Um, I know who our guest is. I'm not going to tell you yet. Um, also because we don't have the episode in the can. So uh, I don't want to say, we've got this. And then it'd be like, oh, nothing happened the way we wanted it to. Just, um, this, it'll be it'll be fun. It'll be a little bit of flashback, a little bit of flash forward. I'll put it that way. And on that note, I'll see you at the show. Wait, wait, wait. Nope, nope, nope. I'm, I'm totally out of it this morning. This is me, not on caffeine. Um, the credits. Yeah, there are credits for the show. The music for the show is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society. Thank you, Chris, as always. Sorry, I nearly forgot you were part of the show. Um, the sustaining backers for No Persinium, and golly gee whiz, there sure are a lot of you, uh, are Ross Sigworth, Bradley Smith, Ian Budman, Arthur Tubman, Ari Hurstan, and Lonnie Hanson. Thank you all. You can back the show at patreon.com slash nopersinium. You can follow us on Twitter at nopersinium. You can follow me on Twitter for some ungodly reason at Noah J. Nelson. We're on Facebook, nopersinium. We're on Instagram, no underscore persinium. Thank you, Catherine, for keeping our Instagram humming. Uh, and um, yeah, nopersinium.com. There, all the things, all the things. Now I get to say the part of the show that I always say, sometimes twice. Until next time. I'll see you at the show.